Thank you for listening to the Faith Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. Today's sermon for the 15th Sunday after Trinity, September 12, 2021, is preached by Pastor Jason Goodham. If you have questions or comments regarding today's message, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website at faithlutheran-aflc.org. Good morning again. Special welcome to those of you who are visiting us this morning. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I would invite you to stand as I read the Old Testament lesson appointed for this Sunday. The sermon text is taken from Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 10, can be found on page 1141 of your pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along. Reading in Jesus' name, Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 10. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and splitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near, who will contend with me. Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Heavenly Father, these are your words and your word is truth. We pray that this morning you would sanctify us in the truth, that you would convict us of sin in our lives where that is necessary, and that you would comfort and encourage us with the promises of your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. There's a big idea baked into the foundations of our Old Testament lesson this morning. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. In that half of a verse or verse, do you see the implications of what this passage is setting us up for? Simply this, you are the weary. You are the one who needs to be sustained. Now to be fair, it doesn't say you exactly. You're not explicitly being singled out by God in this passage. But still, the reality of this situation is that Isaiah's prophecy here is directed to you because Isaiah's prophecy here is about Jesus. One of the most basic, most fundamental confessions of our faith is that what Jesus came to do, he has done, and what Jesus has accomplished was all for you. And so if the purpose of Jesus' arrival as he is sent by God in his incarnation is to sustain with a word those who are weary, what it means as we study scripture this morning is that you are weary. Now at any given point in time, 
I would expect that maybe as much as 80, 85, even 90% be start nodding you. Yeah, totally get it. I am weary, know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, if the Bible school students haven't caught up to 2 a.m. bedtime yet in the dorms, yeah, we, we're starting to get weary after a week of classes. Seminarians, after opening, what, seven, eight syllabi this week and starting to write down your assignment due dates, yeah, we get weary. Uh, parents with children, enough said. <laughs> I don't even have to go into detail on that one. Most of us, are going to get weary and recognize it. You can even ask my own wife about weariness. I am completely and utterly worthless every night after 7.30. My goal is to get to bedtime with my kids, and afterwards, I'm just hopeless, right? We get weariness. But, but, but the point of this isn't for those people who know they're weary. They're going to hear this and receive it with joy and comfort. The point of this passage is for that 10 to 20% that don't think they're weary. There, there's a group of people, and especially a group of Christians out there that think weariness is a sign of spiritual weakness, that think weariness is a confession of a lack of faith. Those are those people especially that are in God's sight. It's those people that think Christianity is always about having a positive attitude, about living your best life now, about demonstrating your faith in God and expressing that you have no cares or concerns in this world because you are completely gung-ho, dependent, and sold out for Jesus. If you've ever been in that spot or you're in that spot right now, this passage is for you. You are weary. No matter how much you try to deny it, no, how much, no matter how much you think you feel good, your spirit is worn out. Because in your confession that everything in the Christian life is happy-go-lucky and positive and okay, you are wearing yourself out. You are wearing your spirit and your soul out. And the whole point of this passage then, as we turn our eyes back to Isaiah 50, is that what Jesus came to do, and what he did, and what he has accomplished, it's all for you. He has come to sustain you with a word who are weary. So as we look at Isaiah 50 this morning, obviously the first thing that's going to jump out is that Jesus' words are for you. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Jesus' words are for you. And one of the great truths of Jesus' identity that the church has confessed for 2,000 years now is that Jesus is simultaneously a prophet, a priest, and a king. It's, it's a message that's woven throughout the pages of Scripture. And in that great trio of titles, of course, is prophet. 
What this means is not only is Jesus the Word of God, as we find from John chapter 1, but Jesus also comes to us with God's words. Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is the prophet, capital T, capital H, capital E. He relays the Word of God and the will of God to his hearers. And Jesus' word is always for your comfort. It's always to sustain you. We have to pause and be clear here for a moment. The words that Jesus utters in Scripture are not always comforting. When Jesus yells at Peter to get behind me, Satan, Peter didn't respond with, oh, thank you, Jesus. That's not how it works. When, when, when Jesus equates the woman at his table with a dog waiting for table scraps, she was not in that moment feeling pretty good about herself. When Jesus rolls his eyes at the disciples when they can't cast out a demon and said, oh, how long will I be with you? Those don't bring about warm fuzzies. But those words and every word that Jesus speaks to those he encounters in the gospel and to those he encounters through the gospel like us, these words always work themselves out for your comfort. And it is because the entire point of Scripture, the whole of the Bible, the entirety of God's word is to deliver Jesus to you. Scripture paints a complete picture of God's plan of redemption, and then Scripture delivers God's plan of redemption in Christ as completed. What this means is that even as Scripture assaults your sinfulness, even as Scripture accuses you of the most grotesque sins, even as Scripture even insults your identity, it does this in order that you might repent of your sins. And in repenting of your sins, and in crying out to God for mercy, when you are weary, God always meets you with forgiveness. God is always there to comfort you. And so Peter, as he is shamed in front of his colleagues hearing that Jesus has just called him Satan, can be comforted knowing that each and every time he stuck his foot in his mouth, and in the Gospels, Peter's quite familiar with the taste of his foot. In the end, Jesus comes to him, and he says, Peter, feed my lambs. Peter, tend my sheep. And to the woman, he equated with the dogs begging for scraps. Jesus marvels at her faith. And to the disciples he instructs for their lack of faith, Jesus overcomes fallen creation and restores it for them and for us. Pastor Haugen set me up quite nicely on that one. Thank you, by the way, for that. Jesus is always there restoring. He's always there reconciling. He's always there healing and comforting. God seeks and desires and delights to forgive you. 
And the words that Jesus speaks and preaches and uses to do miracles, they are a part of that message. Jesus himself is concerned about your healing and your salvation and your eternity. He is concerned about your comfort and he wants to sustain you in your weariness. As we continue on in Isaiah 50, we also see that Jesus' life and especially his suffering is for you. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. God does not leave us with empty words in Scripture, with plaudits and promises that are too good to be true. God's not capable of doing that. But God always backs up his words with his actions. And this is most true about your redemption. Jesus lived out all the prophecies in the Old Testament about how God would save and deliver his people. And the vast majority of these prophecies delineate that the suffering Son of God would accomplish redemption through his suffering. That that redemption doesn't just pop into existence, but the payment for your sins and for my sins involved the suffering and death of the Son of God. Now, some of Jesus' suffering was physical. Even as he walked and lived and breathed and taught, he experienced cold. He suffered from emotions. The easiest verse in the Bible to memorize is, Jesus wept. He, he struggled with those things. He suffered. But especially during the week of his passion, Jesus was beaten. He was struck. He was whipped. And ultimately, he was nailed to a cross and then suspended in mid-air from those nails until he died of asphyxiation. Uh, One of the disservices the church of the 20th and 21st century has done is we have turned Jesus' death and his crucifixion and his trial into some kind of philosophical abstract. There's no emotion, there's no dirt and sweat involved in Jesus' death, but we know how he died. We understand the physical torment of what he went through. We know exactly what that part of it would have been like for him. And it was grotesque. It was painful beyond measure. And it was a part of his suffering. Some of Jesus' suffering was emotional. Jesus sweat drops of blood in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he died. That he was so concerned about what lay before him, the strain in his forehead caused the capillaries in his skin to burst so that the blood mingled with the sweat. It's an actual medical condition. His, his suffering was emotional to the extent that when Jesus talks here in, in Isaiah prophetically, that he did not turn, or he gave his back to those he, who struck him, and he did not, uh, he, he gave his cheek to those who pull out the beard. That actually happened. But the emotional part of that 
is that the people who were striking him and pulling out the hair of his beard, those were his people, the people he came to save. And to anyone who has ever experienced the betrayal from a friend, Jesus experienced that to the nth degree. Some of Jesus' suffering was spiritual. You can almost hear Christ's words as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus bears on his back, metaphorically speaking, the sins of the entire world for all time, and God pours out his wrath on Jesus instead of on you. But what's highlighted especially here in Isaiah 50 is that as Jesus suffered, he suffered shame. Jesus gave his back to those who strike and his cheeks to those who pull out the beard. He did not hide his face from the disgrace and spitting that he experienced, that, that he was treated like a filthy criminal. And of course, the shame of all shame was the crucifixion itself. It was the height of all curses in the Jewish world, and it was saved for the very worst of criminals in the Roman world. And to such an extent that Roman citizens, if you were a paper-holding citizen of the Roman Empire, no matter what you did, you were not eligible to be crucified. It was considered so horrible. Jesus, by God, in accordance with his plan, was the criminal of all criminals. And he suffered that shame. The reality here that Isaiah is delivering to us, then, is that all this suffering is a picture of your sin. This is something we have a hard time wrapping our brains around in our modern world because we have mostly and actually quite successfully done away with the concept of shame. There are people today, I am entirely convinced, that are incapable of feeling shame. Every time someone utters the phrase, just be true to yourself, a little bit of shame dies because what they're excusing is that everything that you do is somehow an expression of who you are and who you are can't possibly be bad, so just don't be ashamed of it. And what we've done, and all of this sentiment has eliminated moral standards. We've learned to equate our behavior with our identity. But in reality, our sin, as it clings to us, is shameful. It is disgusting and tragic and deserves condemnation and mocking and punishment. As we stand before the holy, perfect, righteous God of the world in our sin and in our filth, we deserve shame. We deserve to be mocked and ridiculed. But this also means that Christ's suffering, including, and maybe for our purposes this morning, especially the shame he experienced, it was for you. It was in your place. Christ suffered the condemnation of your sin so you don't have to. Now, this is not to say that your sin doesn't have temporal consequences. It often does. If you do something dumb... 
it's often going to come back to bite you. But as far as eternity is concerned, as far as the realm of God's justice is concerned, Christ stands in your place. Christ was condemned because of your sin, and Christ died because of your sin, and he conquered it. Christ suffered all this and emerged victorious. Should you eternally wear the mark of your sin and your shame, you would die eternally. But Jesus, in dying, three days later, emerges from the tomb completely unscathed. He is the eternal, perfect, holy, righteous Son of God, so that even the wounds that he suffered, the holes where the nails pierced, are a part of his glorified and risen identity. Jesus has conquered shame, he has conquered sin, and he has conquered death for you. And his resurrection is the evidence of it. It is for your comfort. And it is to sustain you in your weariness. And finally, Jesus' example is for you. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Oftentimes, when Jesus' life and even his death are discussed, the only level they are talked about is at the level of example. Jesus, in this way, serves as a moral compass for us. He demonstrates how we should live according to God's will and how we should sacrificially love our neighbor. That, if you're wondering, is what WWJD is all about. And if you lived through the 90s, you know exactly what I'm talking about. To be sure... Jesus is our example, and in fact, Jesus is our moral compass. But when Jesus' example is spoken about and taught in this way, the only reason it would ever be for us is as another law for us to follow, as another standard for us to live up to, as another point of comparison for us to measure ourselves against. And that is not an asset. It's not a net good for us because we are sinners. But here in Isaiah 50, Jesus' example is for us in another more specific and beneficial way. Jesus serves as an example of what it means to remain and abide in God's faithfulness during suffering. Jesus stands steadfastly against his enemy. And he confesses, because he who vindicates me is near. The Lord God helps me. And all of Jesus' enemies will wear out like a garment. But these last half of the verses of our passage today are discussing, or what they're describing, is what it looks like for a child of God to live a life of prayer. 
What Jesus' example points you back to is that when you suffer, when you suffer from your sin or you suffer because of the sins of another, Jesus' example to you is that you have the right and the privilege and the freedom to take that suffering and to turn to God and rest in God's peace. That's Jesus' example. And it works as an example because Jesus has succeeded where it mattered most for you. You are redeemed. You are a child of God. You have been washed in the blood of Christ. In Christ, and because of Christ, God himself has declared you not guilty. Just as Jesus confesses in our passage today, you no longer have to fear and cower in the presence of a holy God because he has declared you perfectly and entirely righteous. When God looks at you at any given moment, he sees Jesus in your place. And what Jesus has done for you is he has taken all of your sin, grabbed hold of it, and made it his own, and he has taken all of his righteousness, and he has clothed you in it. He has placed it on you. You stand right now in the midst of your enemies against the raging of the devil and the world and even your own sinful, guilty conscience. You stand as one who is forgiven, as one who possesses the victory. You stand as one who has access to the throne of God that we might approach the one who gives out grace and mercy and who sustains us in our weariness. So there's just one last verse to consider. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. You are weary. Whether or not you know it, whether or not you admit it, whether or not you try against all of your might to not be weary, you are weary. You need to be comforted. If you're anything like me, you're always one step closer to being overwhelmed than you are to thinking you've got it all figured out. But God sustains you. And he sustains you by the love of his son, Jesus Christ. He sustains you with Jesus' words. He sustains you with his life and his death and his suffering and his resurrection. He sustains you with the example of resting in his faithfulness. But here's where it all comes together in the one unified message of Scripture. And the call and the invitation of this verse is to trust in the name of the Lord and rely on God. And here is what we do it. Because I can't think 
of any other passage in all of the Old Testament that was filled more literally than the first verse of our Old Testament lesson. Listen again to what it says as we close. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. As God has planned and coordinated and directed all of human history, he has done so to fulfill that verse. You are, dear saints, sustained with exactly one word, literally and unequivocally. And it is a word that the Son of God uttered as he was pinned to a cross 2,000 years ago. It's a Greek word, but it's one word, to telestai. It's a word that comes into our language as it is finished. The Lord God has sustained you with the word, and that word always and forever delivers to you the comfort of your completed redemption. Amen. Now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard and keep your lives and your minds and your hearts and your spirits in Christ Jesus our Lord for all eternity. Amen.